0: This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Amyloidosis. It's an uncommon disease, maybe even considered rare, but I suspect most of us have seen a patient or two who've been diagnosed with it. Some varieties tend to occur in association with other diseases. It's got a variety of presentations and unless we think of the condition, we may miss the opportunity to diagnose it early. As a result, many patients are diagnosed with amyloidosis at a rather advanced stage. So today's topic is amyloidosis and our guest is Dr. Ellie Mukhtar from the Division of Hematology at the Mayo Clinic. Ellie, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Dr. Jatka. It's a great opportunity to discuss with you the topic of amyloidosis. Appreciate that.
0: Well, let's start by talking about amyloid itself. What is it and where does it come from?
1: So amyloid was initially coined as a pathological term. What was seen under the microscope was actually amorphous material that was positively stained for Congo red. And under polarized light microscopy, it has a green or apple green appearance. It later been discovered that amyloid is actually a very highly organized protein fibrils. And since they are very organized, they are resistant to degradation. And if they continue to be produced, they will accumulate in the tissue. And from there, the uh, all saga of amyloidosis uh, actually started.
0: All right. Now, there's more than one type of amyloidosis. Is is that correct?
1: That's totally correct. Actually, the number of amyloidosis types is increasing with time because we are recognizing more and more types. Some of them are systemic, meaning that the disease can affect many organs in the body, and some of them are localized. I would say that the two most common types nowadays, especially in the U.S., are the light chain uh, amyloidosis. And the second most commonly type is the TTR or transthyretin amyloidosis. These are the two common types. We have other types, uh, AA or secondary amyloidosis was uh, quite prevalent in the Western world a century ago. It was secondary to inflammation, chronic inflammation on chronic infection, and that has been subsided at least in the Western world, but probably still prevails in the more developing countries.
0: As I think about the patients I've had with one form of amyloidosis or another, they seem to be more in the older age group. Is that one of the risk factors for amyloidosis age?
1: We would say that, you know, it really depends on, on the type, but generally speaking, age should be considered a risk factor. We know that for lichen amyloidosis, which is the most common type, the average age at presentation is around 65 because this comes with a plasma cell disorder, which increases with age. For the TTR amyloidosis, we do see that it is age-related, at least the age-related type, what was previously considered senile amyloidosis. This is more commonly seen in elderly patients, usually male. And for AA amyloidosis, that can affect younger patients, but can also affect older adults. So I would say that age is definitely a risk factor. I would also mention that for patients with light chain amyloidosis they must have a, a plasma cell disorder and this is commonly described as MGUS monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance multiple myeloma smoldering multiple myeloma other protein secreting disorders such as lymphoma type disease so a patient cannot have a light chain amyloidosis without having a predisposing condition which is a monoclonal protein secreting disorder
0: Is there any hereditary component to this?
1: There are some hereditary forms of amyloidosis, and we are seeing that more and more. We are revealing more new types of hereditary amyloidosis. Generally speaking, hereditary amyloidosis is quite rare. It's mostly TTR, can be hereditary form, and that sometimes comes with a family history and sometimes it's not. So family history doesn't exclude hereditary forms but generally speaking, most types of amyloidosis are acquired and not hereditary.
0: So let's talk about the different organs that amyloidosis may occur in. I'm, I'm quite aware of cardiac amyloid. I know amyloid is part of Alzheimer's disease as well. What other organs might be involved with this?
1: So this is a, a very important question because people need to be aware of where amyloidosis can actually come into. Basically, any organ can be infiltrated by amyloid, and that's the takeaway message, that really any organ can be affected by the disease. Since we have different types, I think that we probably should see the types as influencing the organ involvement pattern. The most common type, as I mentioned, is the lichen amyloid amyloidosis. In this type, usually there is more than one organ, but some patients present with a single organ involvement. The most common organ to be involved in lichen amyloidosis is the heart, and this is a very critical one because heart drives the uh, prognosis in this disease. 75-80% of patients with lichen amyloidosis would have some degree of heart involvement. It can be uh, mild involvement and can be very advanced involvement. Other organs in lichen amyloidosis include renal involvement. Uh, more than 50% of patients will have a kidney involvement. Patients can have nerve involvement that can affect their peripheral nerve or their autonomic nerve. So they can present with paresthesia and pain in the end of their extremities. They can uh, present with disabilities and they can present with autonomic neuropathy, for example, orthostatic uh, symptoms or urinary retention or erectile dysfunction. These are all manifestations of autonomic neuropathy. Some people will have liver involvement some people will have other more rare uh, organs to be involved, such as the GI, the muscles, the lungs. Virtually any organ can be involved in lichen amyloidosis. There are other types of amyloidosis we discussed. So TTR or transthyretin amyloidosis in the wild type where there's no mutation in the protein, this is usually and mostly affects the heart. It can involve other organs such as the nerves, but it's mostly the heart. The hereditary form of this disease can affect typically the heart and or the nerves. As for other, more rare types of amyloidosis, that really depends on the specific type. But again, any organ can be involved in amyloidosis, but type will drive what is the most frequent organ to be involved in this disease.
0: So really the presenting symptoms really depend on which organ system is predominantly involved in.
1: That's correct. I mean, I think that most patients, regardless of the type, will have a non-specific symptoms. Probably one of the most common one is fatigue, which I assume that you agree is very non-specific. Right. And many patients will have ankle edema, either because of heart involvement or kidney involvement. So this is, again, a very non-specific symptoms. But as the disease advances, and, and we say that amyloid is a protein that is resistant to degradation. So it really give us progressive nature of the disease, the symptoms slowly progress. Sometimes the patient is not fully aware that something is wrong until he's really affected by the disease because of the insidious nature of the disease. So, for example, patients with heart involvement, they will have heart failure symptoms. They will have shortness of breath on exertion. They will first notice that when they climb stairs at home. Or they go uphill. This is the first time that they notice that they have some heart failure symptoms. They may experience ankle edema because of this heart failure. They may experience syncope because of cardiac arrhythmias that may occur. So this is for the heart. People with kidney involvement typically, but not always, will have proteinuria, meaning excess of protein secretion into the urine. This is usually asymptomatic but will result in ankle edema if the proteinuria is severe. And some people will notice that their urine is becoming frothy. Sometimes they are not aware of the reason for that. They may not seek reason for that, help for that, but that will be a presenting symptom, having a frothy urine. And some of them will develop a renal failure if they are not diagnosed in a timely manner. Some people, as we discussed, have nerve involvement. So, paresthesias are very common in patients with amyloidosis, and these are painful paresthesias. They are very noticeable, and they will seek attention for this paresthesias. Some people will have weight loss because of cardiac cachexia or liver involvement or malabsorption if their GI system is being involved. And those patients will have vomiting or diarrhea or constipation or alteration of those just because of their GI involvement. So it really is the organ involvement pattern that will drive the symptomology. And this is one of the hard parts of amyloidosis, that it can really manifest in different ways. And there is no single presenting symptoms that we can say this is amyloid. So it's really a constellation of things and thinking about the diagnosis as part of the differential for the patient.
0: So does amyloidosis actually belong to any one medical specialty or is it really the specialty of that organ that manages patients with it?
1: We as hematologists, we treat chain amyloidosis. But see, we see other types because amyloidosis was kind of felt to be owned by the hematologist, but that's not true. I would say almost any specialty in medicine will see patients with amyloidosis. Again, it depends on the organ involvement pattern, but I would say that it will be mostly seen by cardiologists or by nephrologists or neurologists. Since the care is complex because of the multi-organ involvement, This will require a team uh, work, a multidisciplinary approach because this is the best way to improve the control of symptoms and prolong life for those patients. And I would say one more thing. Many people come and seek first medical attention with a family doctor and internal medicine. So really, this is a very important station in the workup of patients with amyloidosis. And this is where we need to uh, put efforts as in other specialties in increasing the awareness and bringing amyloidosis more up the list of the differential diagnosis, especially when there is an organ failure
0: symptoms. So let's say a patient has one type of amyloid dose. let's say cardiac amyloid. Are they at any more risk of having other organs involved with amyloid?
1: When someone has cardiac amyloidosis, we know that this is a systemic amyloid. It means that there is a possibility that other organs are being involved. So other organs need to be sick and checked. Are they involved as well with amyloid? That's usually by different testing that we do. I think that the other key message is the type drives if other organs are likely or not likely to be involved. chain amyloidosis, which again, the most common type, tends to have more than one organ involvement. So if you have a heart involvement, it's likely that you have another, at least one more organ to be involved, and that needs to be assessed. Typically, when we see patients with amyloid of the heart, which is systemic, as I said, we always look for the most commonly involved organs. We look for the kidneys, we look for the liver, we we'll look for the GI, and this is typically by just asking questions to the patient, understanding does he have any symptoms that may arise from those organs, and if they have those potential organ involvement, then we seek more advanced testing to see if there are more organ involvement. And I think this is an important because it gives an outlook for the patient. It may change our management if we know that there is more than one organ being involved.
0: Well, I know I've seen some patients where cardiac amyloid has been suspected, and I know the echocardiogram often has a characteristic appearance of amyloid, and also patients who've had some evidence of malabsorption, the question of amyloid of the gut has come up, but these aren't really diagnostic tests. How do you actually diagnose amyloid? How do you confirm the diagnosis?
1: Right. Beyond erasing the possibility of amyloid, this is the most difficult part in the diagnostic approach to patients with amyloidosis, there is no single test that can tell us, blood test at least, that can tell us that there is amyloid. So once there is a suspicion for amyloids, as you mentioned, for example, echocardiogram that may show characteristics, and the characteristics of thick walls, typically, and diastolic dysfunction, preserved ejection fraction, and the patient present with a heart failure symptom. So this is a heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, speckled appearance of the heart is supportive. Today, by the way, we have a strain imaging that is more sensitive, and if the strain is abnormal, has a specific pattern that increases the chances of cardiac amyloidosis, then we need to really get to diagnosis. Diagnosis in most patients will require tissue diagnosis. You need to demonstrate amyloid in a tissue. So obviously getting into the heart and getting a tissue, it's a possibility, but it's not an easy one. And since it's a systemic disease, we may be able to get the tissue elsewhere. So for example, if we are doing a fat aspiration, we have probability, depends on the type of reaching the diagnosis from the abdominal fat and not doing a biopsy of the heart. I would say that patients, uh, since we are going by the most common diagnosis, all patients that have suspected amyloidosis should have a monoclonal protein studies. That includes the serum and the urine electrophoresis immunofixation. These are all tests and can be easily done, but also serum-free light-chain assay, because the light-chain amyloidosis is derived from increase in the amount of light-chains one type, either a kappa or a lambda in the blood. And that test that measures the amount of serum light chains, the kappa and the lambda can give us a probability. Are we having a possibility of uh, light chain amyloid doses? Because if any of those tests, the electrophoresis immune effect section of the serum or the urine or the serum free light chain assay, If any of those tests is abnormal, that increases the chances that the patient might have a lichen amyloid dosis. Again, we discuss if there is a monoclonal protein process, then lichen amyloid dosis is definitely a risk factor. And in that case, we can satisfy ourselves initially with having a fat aspiration, maybe doing a bone marrow biopsy because we want to check for this monoclonal protein process directly from the bone marrow. That gives us two tissue samples. And if the diagnosis is indeed light chain amyloidosis, it will capture the amyloid in 90% of patients. So that's a very effective way of diagnosing amyloidosis. If we are not reaching the diagnosis of amyloidosis from less invasive tissues, then one can consider doing endomyocardial biopsy or biopsy of the affected organs. I would also mention, and I'm sorry that this is a bit complex. For TTR amyloid doses today, we can diagnose it without the need to rely on a tissue diagnosis with the use of a bone scintigraphy scan. It's called PYP scan or DPD scan. This is a very highly sensitive and relatively highly specific imaging it's a bone imaging, but in TTR amyloidosis, the heart takes up the bone tracer, and this is highly suggestive of cardiac amyloidosis. And we can make the diagnosis of cardiac amyloidosis in the absence of tissue confirmation using this old bone scintigraphy testing. The only caveat is the patient must not have monochrome protein, so they have to have this serum and urine uh, electrophoresis immunofixation and serum-free light chain assays, because if one of those are positive, then we cannot rely on the uh, PYP scan because there is a possibility that will be a light chain amyloid dosis. So it's a bit complex, but having a tissue, especially not from the involved organ, can help us in understanding the uh, chances of amyloid and having a monoclonal protein studies because lichen amyloidosis is still the most common type of amyloidosis. I would also want to say and emphasize that, you know, we are discussing different types. Part of the diagnostic part is the typing. We need to make sure that we not only diagnosing amyloid, but we also making sure that we are diagnosing it with the correct type, because treatment will be driven by the type and we'll discuss it in a minute, we have to know the type. And this is a very crucial part. We have now better ways to type amyloidosis to avoid mistakes, because if we are doing a not good job with typing, we'll give a patient a completely incorrect therapy.
0: And that's my next direction. Can you say a little bit about treatment and how effective it is?
1: Since we have what we call amyloid factory, it depends on the type, but there is a secretion of a protein into the blood coming from, for example, in nitrogen amyloidosis is coming from the bone marrow. In TTR, it's coming from the liver. In order to stop the formation of amyloid, we must cut down the supply of the protein that makes the amyloid. This is the cornerstone for any treatment of any amyloidosis type. We must stop the supply of this abnormal protein. So this is how therapy goes. So for example, if we have light chain amyloid doses, we need to kill those plasma cells in the bone marrow that secrete the axis of light chains that makes the amyloid. And we use therapies that we use for the treatment of multiple myeloma, which is a related disorder. So that includes chemotherapy. That includes in some patients that will be eligible as stem cell transplantation. We have now a new approved therapy this year, very, very uh, promising therapy called daratumumab, which is a monoclonal antibody against those clonoplasma cells in the bone marrow. Very effective and very little toxic therapy with a very good results in, in lichen amyloidosis. In TTR amyloidosis, the source of the abnormal protein is coming from the liver. And we need to cut down the supply of this protein. One of the ways is by what we call silencers. This is RNA molecules that degrade the mRNA in the liver and reducing the amount of TTR circulating in the blood. And for other form of TTR amyloid doses, we have the stabilizers that make the TTR protein stable and prevent him from misfold and becoming an amyloid. If we have secondary amyloidosis, which is secondary to inflammation or infection, chronic infection, we need to control the inflammation or the infection. This is why the disease is becoming more and more rare. Some cases are classified as idiopathic. And in those cases, we usually give an IL-1 blockade, usually with uh, antibodies, for example, anakinra. So the corner store for any type of amyloidosis is cut down the supply of the amyloid in order to reduce the amount of amyloid being deposited and give a chance for the organ
0: to recover. So what's happening in research? Anything promising that you see on the horizon?
1: Amyloidosis in the past probably 20 years has seen really good advancement in treatment and in diagnostics. So I think this is a very promising and very uh, exciting time for a physician that deals with amyloidosis because we have much more options today than we had before. I would probably say that we have several sections where research is focused on. The first one is to increase awareness of the disease and having early detection. For example, here at Mayo Clinic, there is a new tool called EKG Artificial Intelligence. This is a completely computer-based algorithm that looks into the EKG and gives a prediction if the EKG is possibly EKG of an amyloid patient. It gives a score, and if the score is high enough, it may indicate that the patient may have amyloid. This is a completely new thing. And many patients have what we call normal EKGs, because really it's uh, subtle uh, changes. But if the computer can see that this may be an amyloid, we can diagnose patients earlier using this tool. This is a new tool. We need to see how to implement that in clinical practice. But I think this is a very exciting thing. So early diagnosis, we are coming with new tools. One of the things that we are missing in amyloid is good imaging modalities. We don't have a very good imaging modalities besides the heart for amyloid doses. There are several centers in the world that are working on making an amyloid-seeking tracers, tracers that go into the amyloid deposit and highlight where is the amyloid in the body. Is it in the heart, in the kidneys, in the nerves, maybe some other tissues that we are not aware of, and that may give us some more idea about how advanced the disease is and maybe how it's responding to therapy. Are we able to clear the amyloid from the tissue? So this is a very important aspect. Another aspect is obviously development of new therapies, and this is ongoing. Just in the past years, we have a few more therapies for lichen amyloid doses. This year, the first treatment that was approved for lichen amyloid doses, daratumumab. In TTR amyloid doses, we have Tefamidis that was approved by the FDA in 2018, So we have really, and more are coming, so we are really having more and more treatment options, and this is uh, also in development. I think that the last thing that is under research is coming up with a treatment that will be able to remove the amyloid, because all what we've discussed so far is treatments that aim at reducing the ability of amyloid to misfold and become amyloid deposits into the tissue we don't have any therapies that were able to take the amyloid outside from the tissue, which have probably the best advantage for people that have advanced disease. I mean, if we are treating those patients and cutting down the supply of amyloid, but not removing the amyloid that already been deposited in those tissues, probably we're unlikely to give them a lot of benefit. So therapies that will remove amyloid from the tissue will be a very important. And if it can be generalized to all amyloidosis type, like a generic treatment for amyloid, that will be a very uh, good news to all of our patients.
0: Well, I want to emphasize that the majority of patients with amyloidosis will probably start out with the primary care provider. So it's important for us to recognize the various organs, and the different presentations that it may result in. So our topic today has been amyloidosis, and we've been discussing the condition with Dr. Ellie Mukhtar from the Division of Hematology at the Mayo Clinic. Ellie, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today.
1: It was really great pleasure to uh, accept this invitation and have the discussion with you, and we hope that this podcast and others will increase the awareness of uh, physicians to this uh, terrible disease. Thank you very much